If you listen to The Weeds, we know you like to stay up to date on things through podcasting. That's why you listen. And right now, you can stream our podcast and a bunch of others like it on Spotify. So it's really easy. You just open the app on your mobile device and desktop. You click on the Browse channel, and then click on the Podcast section. Uh, So one thing that's really great about this is when you use Spotify for podcasts, you can stream on your smart speaker at home as as well as on your phone and other type stuff. So start streaming today to stay up to date on the world's latest news with Spotify. Uh, It's not just for music. Podcasts, too. amazing. I pointed out that Cambridge Analytica, like so many other things in life, scans perfectly to Alexander Hamilton. And so both of us have been going around with our heads singing Cambridge Analytica. Dara poisoned my mind. I did. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lind and Andrew Prokop. And we wanted to talk today. There's some weird stuff happening uh, this morning with the president maybe going to veto bills, but we think that probably won't happen. Uh, We wanted to talk about Cambridge Analytica, a company that has been, I would say, hovering at the margins of national political attention for a while now, but that recently burst into the center thanks to a weird guy with pink hair and some, some revelations about how they were getting their their Facebook user data. But Andrew, you wrote about this. Can you just tell us, like, like, where did this company come from? Yes. What is a Cambridge Analytica? Okay. So the story starts back in the 1990s. Uh, there was a former British ad man named Nigel Oakes, and he started a company called the SCL Group, uh, Strategic Communications Laboratories. And SCL did what sounds like pretty standard PR and messaging work. They worked for various countries and and scored contracts with governments around the world. And and they basically claimed to be kind of, you know, they they said they knew how to get out a message and to convince people and persuade people of things. So, you know, if you read some of the coverage of them at the time, they got a contract from the president of Indonesia in the in around 1999 and and the government of Thailand at the time too. And it, it's pretty funny, some of these old stories. Uh, one of them describes how SCL Group at the time, uh, they, they would go to these new countries and they would construct these elaborate operation centers and fill them with computers. They, they seem to be patterned after the James Bond movie Goldeneye, where the villain has like this big complex filled with computers. And, and in fact, SCL hired the same company that built that movie set to set up these uh, sets or, or operation centers in these other countries. And, and the coverage at the time is kind of making fun of them. Like it, like it sort of seems like they're trying to look really, really impressive. And, and what they actually did is that they sound like a, a little bit on the shadier side of the PR business. At, at one point, they made up uh, or they, they had a false government document, like a purported government document from the government of Indonesia saying that the country would, based on a confidential intelligence assessment, the, the country would fall into chaos if their client was not reelected. So they tried to get the Indonesian papers to write up stories on this phony document, sort of stuff like that. And also more standard, like they would just like read every article in the news and, and give a summary of it to their clients. So that's all kind of... So it's like PR with a little bit of dirty tricks. Yeah. Plus... Maybe a somewhat unusual marketing approach. Yes, yes. And after 9-11, they got into these sort of um, anti-terror psychographic uh, business, like counter-jihad, basically. Like they were, they, they were claiming that they could do messaging in Middle Eastern and um, North African countries that would, would, would try to persuade the population not to support radical terror or, or jihad or things like that. So, so they would score contracts from certain governments and, and um, agencies to do that sort of stuff. And eventually, what, what really comes through from this coverage of SCL Group in the past is that they were really good at convincing people to write them big checks and retain their services. That, that is undeniably one thing they were very good at. What they actually could accomplish with that is, is less clear. So fast forward to 2013, 2014, 
SEL and their British executives are looking to make a big splash in the United States and to move the to- The world's biggest PR market. Yeah, move to political consulting there. And Steve Bannon hears about them and what they're being able to claim to do. At this point, they have even a more futuristic sounding pitch. They claim that they can do an entirely new- style of political targeting. So traditionally, uh, political targeting in campaigns relies heavily on demographic indicators, race, age, gender, and and they try to figure out how you'll vote based on that. Party identification also, sort of these very uh, clear markers. Now, Cambridge, or what became Cambridge, claimed that they could do a specific type of targeting that was based on people's personalities. Like they could figure out what your personality is and target you with specific messages that will be more effective because they know what your personality is. So to do this, they use what's called the, um, in psychology, the big five or ocean personality traits. It's like a survey that you, it's self-reporting, but it's pretty reliable in psychology studies at measuring pr- pretty durable measurements. Well, so I, I think I think we should explain this because it it gets it gets a little glossed over. I think it, in some of the coverage, and it's and it's interesting. I think on its on its own terms, right? And so this is psychologists over the years have hit upon this this idea that you give people this like pretty long survey, right? Where they they ask you questions like. Um, would you describe yourself as the life of the party? Um, do you say that you uh, get irritated easily? You know, so there's there's, there's like a, a whole bunch of questions, and, and you, you can go from strongly agree with that or strongly disagree or right. somewhere in between. So they're asking you about your own right. personality, and so then they do a what's called a factor analysis, where they show that like across a whole bunch of people certain kinds of answers to some of these questions correlate with each other, both internally and externally, and that people's answers cluster around like five big poles, right? So it's ocean, it's it's openness to experience, which is, means basically like uh, people who are highly open to experience, like they, they like weird art um, and like trying new kinds of ethnic food and people who are closed uh, like doing the same stuff and, and they like their, their communities and they like regular paintings of representational things. And then there's, there's conscientiousness, um, which is I think mostly what it sounds like. Uh, conscientious people are organized uh, and they do what they say they're going to do. Unconscientious people have messy desks and uh, plan poorly. There's extroversion. Um, so extroverted people like to talk, uh, like to talk to strangers, call attention to themselves. Introverted people like to be quiet, need like alone time. What's the next one? Uh, agreeableness is, oh, yeah. is A. So just what you said about being irritable versus kind of friendly and even-tempered and then... And suspicious, right? So it's like agreeable people tend to think that other people interpret other people's actions generously and disagreeable people do not. And N is neuroticism. So it's just basically, do you (laughs) constantly get wrapped up in your own head and worry about things or are you just kind of, you know... (laughs) <laughs> un, un, Stable and happy. Yeah. And it's so, worth noting that there have been efforts to kind of tie these things to like traditional political camps, you know, over the last several years. Like as there's become more not only awareness that politics is polarized, but like an enthusiasm about seeing political ideology as an identity, there's been some kind of like, oh, conservatives are naturally more closed minded, that kind of stuff that's often been itself a little bit attenuated, but speaks to the desire to like both understand current political groupings as some kind of natural expression of psychology and to say, well, now we have science that proves what kind of person, what kind of beliefs you hold and who you will vote for based on what is going on in your brain. Yeah. And I I think some of that is reasonably well found. I mean, I think this is important because starting with Andrew's point about the movie sets, like I think a big takeaway here is that like Cambridge Analytica seems like bullshit. But broadly speaking, the idea that these personality factors have something to do with politics has like some pretty good evidence that that openness at least among white people is highly predictive of being a liberal then there's some other things that are a little bit um 
harder to know because there's some significant like gender differences in personality expression and also some significant gender differences in voting behavior. So you like you can look at that kind of thing through opposite ends of the of the telescope, but it's not. I guess I would say it's it's not on its face out of ridiculous thing to try. Mm-hmm. But one big, I mean, one problem is like if you had accurate personality inventory on everybody, there's still the whole like assuming the can opener part where you need to then find effective messaging that will target everyone. But the practical problem Cambridge had is that you you can't just go around to every voter and ask them to fill out a hundred question survey accurately. Right. And I mean, like there had been, I remember in the mid 2000s, a bunch of attention from consultants in both parties that like demographics are old and busted. The new hotness is sociographics. And like, this is where the kind of, you know, soccer mom thing hit its apex. But the data that they were relying on, like I remember the first time that I read about big data was in a book, I believe by former Bush campaign advisor, Matt Dowd, about how like magazine subscriptions give people so much data about what kind of person you are and what you consume. And like, no, they don't. They're magazine subscriptions. And so those those attempts kind of, you know, in comparison to they can tell you a little, but like it, it turns out in practice, in comparison to the tried and true ways of targeting voters, you know, new and fancy sociographics didn't matter that much. The Obama campaign in 2008 had a really innovative targeting and GOTV operation, but it wasn't because they were doing particularly sophisticated means of identification. It was because of the you know system they had for figuring out what to do with somebody. I don't know. I mean, look, I, if somebody subscribes to Guns and Ammo magazine, I think to make an inference about their political beliefs is not like the most outlandish thing. No, that no, I've right. Ever. It's it's I don't it's not that it's not that the sociographic model was like inherently busted. It was that the promise of it as something that was going to reform sure. politics by tapping into something deeper than political, you know, like the political or demographic organization turned out not in fact to be superior to traditional demographic organizations. Right. Well so at any rate, yeah, right. So, so Cambridge is gonna hack your mind through the five factors and yeah. make you vote for whoever pays the money. Yeah, so so to take it back to the pitch itself, the British ad executives came over and Bannon set Steve Bannon set them up with the uh, wealthy hedge fund uh, magnate Robert Mercer, who he was advising at the time, and uh, Mercer's daughter, Rebecca. They're two of the biggest Republican donors in the country and later became two major Trump supporters, though at this point they were not. Um, and they basically pitched the Mercers on the idea that they had this entirely new way to do political targeting, that they could do it based on personality and that they wanted money to do it. So the Mercers agreed to put up $15 million to fund this new company in America called Cambridge Analytica. It was apparently mainly a shell company and and the old British group would service its contracts. So they had made these big promises and then they needed to actually get the data to do this fancy personality stuff because they hadn't worked in America and they and they didn't have American data. So what they decided to do was work with this academic from Cambridge University. It seems to be where the name Cambridge Analytica came from. Uh, his name is Alexander Kogan. He's a, a Russian-American, and he created an app called This Is My Digital Life, and it was a personality quiz app of the sorts of questions we were mentioning before. And the app, he, he put on the app, and to take the quiz, you have to like, you know, click through and give it permissions to look at your Facebook account. And you give it the permission to look at your own profile, but it also gave it the permission to, gave the app permission to see the data on all of your friends' profiles. And those friends did not opt into this. Uh, it's the person who is taking the quiz clicked, yes, I gave you permission, but like all of these hundreds of other friends, each of them has, did not give them permission. So that's where you get from about 270,000 Facebook users took this quiz, but they ended up scraping 50 million profiles as a whole based on all of their friends' information that was sucked in. And Kogan 
supposedly agreed when he got Facebook's permission to do this, the terms of service that he agreed to said that he would not use this data for commercial purposes or sell it to an outside company. He was supposed to use it only for academic purposes. But all along, he was planning to sell it to um, Cambridge Analytica and and make a, a good amount of money off of it. So that seems to have been the plan all along. They got the data, and then they started using it uh, for the 2014 midterms to try and target voters. And this is where the Facebook scandal obviously enters into it. But but sticking with with Kogan a little bit, I mean, he, he did a thing that I think was kind of clever, right? Because this has always been the question about, like, what can you do with big five-factor analysis? Because it's such a, it's this long quiz, right? And, and so it's hard to do it. So what he does is you do you answer the question, right? So based on your answers to the questionnaire, you get a, a, an ocean analysis of yourself. But then you give him access to your Facebook page in which you say like which bands you like and which TV shows you watch and stuff like that. So then he gets a bunch of data about consumer preferences that he can then correlate with your your big five answers. And so then he can come up with a with a proxy analysis and like it's it's kind of funny right so it's like liking tom waits salvador dali bjork uh, a clockwork orange and working in the uh, writing industry uh, indicate that you are a heavily open personality um i feel like I didn't necessarily need 50 million data points to know that. I mean, it doesn't seem like you do. I mean, those are pretty, uh, you know, sort of sort of normal. Um, I, I I was surprised to see that um, uh, the band Placebo marks you out as one of the least agreeable people. Um, I I like that band. I was I was a little. I went and took the test. It checks out. I am a highly disagreeable person. Um, <laughs> you know, so so it's all there. Um, liking the Bible uh, or uh, God makes you highly agreeable. Um, so I guess I'm I'm not into that stuff. Um, the the neurotic ones are particularly funny. Uh, unneurotic people like Sports Center, ESPN, Derek Rose, and the Miami Heat. That's um, really funny. <laughs> which so apparently just moving to southern Florida and watching a lot of sports is going to make you very emotionally stable. Uh, but so like that's that's what he did, right? And then with this access to the friends of friends, if it works, right? I mean, who knows, right? But presumably through this, you now have a psychographic profile of not just the people who took the quiz, but of all these millions of other people. Yeah, they're trying to model the people who didn't take the quiz based on sort of the personality results and matched with the other Facebook data from the people who did take the quiz to like extrapolate what everyone else's personality is. And now I think we should take a break. (laughs) Cliffhanger. And we'll be back. Have you been hiring like the old-fashioned way, posting your position to job sites and then you're just waiting, 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 waiting for the right people to see it? There's a better way. Uh, ZipRecruiter, they knew you could do better than this and they built a better way to do it. Uh, so what they do is they learn what you're looking for, they identify people with the right experience, and then they invite them to apply to your job. Uh, these invitations, uh, they revolutionize how you can find your next hire. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in one day. One day! And ZipRecruiter, it doesn't stop there. They spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. So businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. For free. 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 It's great. It's free. It's the smartest way to hire. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, host of I Think You're Interesting, Vox's culture interview podcast. Ever wonder who actually writes the jokes presidents tell? You should check out my recent interview with David Litt. I think Weeds listeners will find the conversation particularly interesting. Litt was a speechwriter for President Obama and the man behind some of the former president's best one-liners. We talked about the best joke he wrote for President Obama. One thing Republicans all agree on is they have to do a better job reaching out to minorities call me self-centered, but I could think of one minority they could start with. And what makes writing comedy for the president different from other comedy? The most important thing about any president telling a joke is that the joke is that it's the president telling a joke. Subscribe to I Think You're Interesting on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I I don't mean to rush this story. This is a good story, but 
I have a lot of questions because the whole idea of an extremely theorized, strategized way to figure out what people want to hear from politicians in particular and then have the politicians say it to them, like, that is not new, but it was wholly rejected by Donald Trump, right? Like, it's extremely hard for me to see this connection between the Donald Trump as a candidate who very clearly was motivated by his own instincts and not particularly by any deeper, you know, strategy or analysis of the electorate, but also the particular messages that Donald Trump was using that were particularly successful, which were basically, you know, Mexicans are coming to kill and rape you and we should stop Muslims from coming into the country. And, you know, you guys aren't getting enough of the good things from the government. The government is giving them to other people. Like, those don't seem like terribly sophisticated messages. They seem like messages that the Republican Party hadn't been using, not because they didn't work, but because they were you know, kind of racist and they thought turned off people in the middle. Like, how does how does all of this glom onto the context of the Republican presidential primary and then the 2016 presidential campaign? So first of all, Cambridge did not start off working for Trump. They started off working for Ted Cruz and uh, a Ted Cruz super PAC because that's who the Mercer family was supporting at the time. The Cambridge got a sort of reputation in Republican circles as the Mercer's somewhat odd pet project and that if you wanted a lot of cash from the Mercer's, you should retain Cambridge to like do this stuff. But then people who worked with them oftentimes weren't particularly impressed with what they actually managed to do. The Cruz team said that they thought that the Cambridge's modeling just was not reliable, personality modeling or, or predictive data on, on voting was was just not useful. And, and they, in fact, stopped using it um, in around February 2016 and had a fight with them over money and so on. So then this is basically you get $10 from Robert Mercer, you give two or three of them to Cambridge, and then at least the mainstream Republican pros would just kind of roll their eyes. Yes. This yes. is yeah, this is something that the that Charles Koch has been doing for ages and ages. The like Charles Koch thinks that he has hacked the secret to how to run an effective company uh, and requires a bunch of the people who, you know, work through his nonprofits to learn it. And basically everyone this is market -based thinks it's, management? it's, it's market-based management. And basically everyone thinks it is total and utter bunk uh, and that it is ironic that the very rich and very capitalist Charles Koch has no understanding of how a capitalist firm should operate. But everybody, you know, is willing to sit through the classes because sitting through the classes is what you have to do to get Charles Koch money. But I will say that if it was true that Cambridge Analytica knew how to reliably target swing voters in the most important electoral college states in a way that no other firm could do, they could read their personality and then just bombard them with political ads on Google, on Facebook, or um, – targeted ads like that to that that were specifically targeted for their personality to make the best targeted approach to pitch them into voting for Donald Trump, then that sounds like a good deal if they could actually do it. But in any case, we get to the general election or, or when just before the Republican convention, I, I think it's around June 2016, and Trump needs some more people on his digital team. And the Mercers have now moved from supporting Cruz to supporting Trump. Uh, Bannon is not yet on the Trump team. He still has a role in Cambridge Analytica, but he's he's an advisor to Trump, and, and he plays a role in making the connection between Cambridge and uh, Jared Kushner and, and Brad Parscale on the Trump campaign. So Trump hires Cambridge. They send 13 people out to Texas where the Trump's digital operation was. And they also do work with a super PAC that was supporting Trump. So Cambridge was generally viewed as the, the heart of Trump's digital operation for the general election against Hillary Clinton. And so that includes like both whatever the psychographic mysticism was, but also just like the basic blogging and tackling of like – I mean like the Trump campaign definitely bought Facebook ads. Right. And it's just like Cambridge, whether they were using like secret psychological profiling to do that or just like regular common sense about which are the swing states and who are the voters, like they, they, they were doing – Yes. They were doing like all the work. It wasn't like there was some giant other team and then this was a little – 
psychic consulting sideshow, right? Yeah, yeah, they were placing online ads. They were also placing some TV ads. They were doing polling. They 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 were doing a lot of um, what you would think of as traditional political consulting work. And and they say that you know both Trump's team and the Cambridge people say that they actually didn't use this special personality targeting in the end because of the RNC's data file proved to be better and more useful at actually figuring out who people were going to vote for than Cambridge's super secret futuristic methods. That said, I mean, there was some attention during the campaign to the Trump digital operation doing things that were, you know, sent using Facebook ads to send messages that were kind of borderline in terms of propriety. Like there's no law that says you're not supposed to put political ads up that are designed to suppress votes. But like usually when you do it, people don't people give you a hard time for it and you're kind of not supposed to. And in the days leading up to the election, there were definitely reports of, you know, ads both on radio and on Facebook targeted at black voters in Florida, for example, that kind of didn't sound like a vote for Donald Trump message. It sounded like a don't vote message. Uh, And people were going, this is, you know, this much vaunted Trump digital operation is kind of coloring outside the lines a little bit. Well, and also it's a so one of the like few rules about campaign finance that exists in America is the like I'm Donald Trump and I endorse this message kind of thing, right? And that rule isn't present online, right? So certain things that you can do, which was I, like one thing they did was they they did ads aiming at younger African Americans that like featured Hillary Clinton's like super predators thing from 25 years ago. They were sort of like from the left attacks on Hillary to try to, you know, demotivate people or or, or whatever. And that's the kind of thing that um if that if an ad like that had ended with like the smirking grin of Donald Trump, that sort of undermines the effort to undermine Hillary's message. And online, you don't need to do that kind of thing, right? And there's a just like a regulatory question of why we've decided that Facebook should be exempt from all generally applicable laws. And there were Trump people leaking at the time, or at least running their mouths to reporters saying, we have a plan to suppress. Uh, black voter turnout. We have a plan to suppress young millennial turnout, which which involved some uh, dredging up like Bill Clinton's old uh, accusations of sexual assault and rape. And by Trump voter, if, by Trump campaign staffers, like Brad Parscale was the dude who was running his mouth about a lot of this. Like the entire idea that the Trump campaign had plans for anything certainly wasn't coming from the candidate, and it wasn't really coming from like Steve Bannon, who was running the campaign by that point. It was the idea that the Trump tech team, led by Brad Parscale, had this particularly sophisticated operation. Although the whole like Bill Clinton accusers thing. I mean, while there may or may not have been a digital component to it, it's it's worth remembering there was like a big, like that was live on television, yeah. like yeah, with no. Donald Trump, right? I mean, always a question with with, I mean, a big question with this is like, what was wagging what here exactly, right? And and so like it it's true that the digital team did stuff like this, and it's true that the Trump campaign, like, did campaigning on digital platforms, but like they also just did a a lot of campaigning on television that like we all saw at the time and whatever you thought of it was not particularly mysterious. I I would say subtlety is not like the hallmark of Donald Trump's approach to politics. Yeah, yeah. But, and it's also worth remembering at the time that there were, there was an article in Politico magazine about Hillary Clinton's amazing team of data wizards that had an algorithm that the campaign was relying on for every important decision, like it was building on the Obama operation. It was it was like so ingenious. And, and the narrative at the time was that Clinton was expected to win. So, you know, then Clinton lost. And I mean, she had the leading data science experts in the known universe. And they had this guy with a scraggly beard working out of San Antonio, um, like a like a web designer. Yeah, with these like with this random British tide operation that every Republican consultant who's worked with them thinks is a joke. So, but then of course Trump wins, and then there's a searching for explanations and and, and how did he pull it off? And and Cambridge after the election is is very eager to take credit and to um, some say inflate their role. Um, just 
because obviously Trump won and it was a very surprising thing. So, you know, they're they're and they want more business. And so they're going to, you know, they, they have this history of, of sort of claiming to be able to do the impossible and, and they continue to sort of make that pitch as, as the year went on. I think the other thing that's kind of probably worth noting here is that the group that they're part of is not new in terms of being political consultants that operate in America, but also in other contexts. Like there's, right. you know, there's been a trend of, you know, sending people out. There was a British election a few years ago where both sides had former Obama staffers advising them. You know, David Axelrod has done a bunch of this stuff. Dick Morris is, you know, still making money because he's operating in other countries. Paul Manafort. Absolutely. Um, And this usually is you win, with the exception of, of Manafort, maybe it's you win in the U.S. and that gives you access to, you know, a continued stream of money from other countries because once you've won in the U.S., that gives you credibility that you know how to win a campaign. Cambridge didn't do that. They did this in the other direction where they were, you know, getting the money in non-U.S. countries first. But having the big win under their belt with the Trump campaign meant that even in contexts where they didn't have to get the Mercers to basically twist the arms of conservative politicians into giving them money, they now had like they were able they would be able to level up in terms of seeking foreign contracts. And then Cambridge though also, I mean, it became an object of fascination, both because they were out there hyping themselves, as any winner would, uh, but also because they were specifically tied to Steve Bannon, the like most disreputable, you know, of like the Trump people, to the Mercers, who I would say their motivations in general in life remain fairly obscure in a way that people find intriguing and and a little off-putting. There is a really great Jane Mayer piece on the Mercers, which I, which we'll put in show notes, um, which I have read, and it's very good, and I still don't understand what the Mercers want. And it's a little unsettling for me as a political reporter to say that. Yeah, and then, and then Cambridge has its ties to people who are Russian. Um, you know, again, like a Russian American data scientist working in England is not the same thing as the Russian government, but like it's not. Nothing. But he got a grant from the Russian government right. to study social media, and it's certainly not nothing from the standpoint of constructing a conspiracy theory. And also, behind the collusion conjecture has always been right. A core of the thesis has always been a unsubstantiated, but you know not unreasonable to look into hypothesis that there was some kind of deliberate sharing of data and resources between the Trump campaign's digital operation and the clearly existing Russian government's digital operation, since both the Trump campaign digital operation and the Russian government's digital operation were trying to achieve the same goal, the question that, you know, the the deep conspiracy people have always been looking for, right? Like, like, like the thing they think they're going to find, the smoking gun they're hoping for, at least one of them, is some direct evidence of interplay between the San Antonio office and, you know, the GRU headquarters or, or something like that. And Cambridge Analytica exists as this potential middleman. Yeah, I think it's also kind of a level on which, you know, the fact that the over the last several months we've had all of these revelations about the particular the extent to which Russian bots and the Internet Research Agency, you know, were extremely vocal in kind of shaping what was happening on Twitter and Facebook in the months and years leading up to the election uh, has kind of allowed a certain narrative of what happened and what what Russia's role in 2016 was to congeal. Like, the question has always been, was the election essentially hacked by this deliberate campaign to elect Donald Trump or as the Trump campaign has often said you know we were too we weren't coordinated with ourselves how could we coordinate with everyone else like was it just a chaos operation that happened to win the idea that the Russian government is pulling is is pumping all this noise into the system is kind of a, an easy way to say well yes it was a deliberate campaign it was a deliberate chaos sowing campaign and so the idea of Cambridge Analytica even if they aren't, you know, it, it both has the potential to be this very coordinated mind-hacking operation. And even if it turns out it's not a big deal, the idea of this kind of d- 
effort to push all of these messages out into the ether on social media lines up very easily, even if you don't believe there's actual coordination there, with this narrative of we were in an artificial chaos environment and electing Donald Trump was the result. But I think also Cambridge, you know, they are a firm and their predecessor firm, the SEL group, like they, they're on the shadier side of the political consulting business. So speculating that they may have been involved in some sort of untoward efforts to dirty tricks or what have you, there have always been, I think, two major or maybe three major ways, like theories for Trump collusion with Russia for what exactly happened during the campaign. I think one is the first is that there was some some discussion or collaboration regarding the hacking of the emails and uh, the many Democratic emails that were hacked. The hacks were attributed to Russia. They were all leaked. And the question is whether anyone in the Trump campaign, you know, collaborated with, knew about, um, had inside information about any of this. And one interesting thing here is that the CEO of Cambridge Analytica, Alexander Nix, um, got into contact with Julian Assange of WikiLeaks during the campaign. He um, he had heard uh, Assange said publicly that he had a bunch of hacked emails that related to Hillary Clinton, and Nix contacted him and said, could I get an advanced look at the emails? And supposedly Assange said no, and then after Assange started posting uh, the first batch that WikiLeaks got, the DNC emails, then um, Nix contacted him again, and, and he offered to help better organize the uh, hacked emails or, or to, to like do some web project so that you know, American voters could better read and review the hacked emails. Now, the email hackings are a crime. That is like very clear. So he, you know, they, there are questions about his exposure. We don't know. And Assange is hiding out in the Ecuadorian embassy because he's a fugitive. Yes. And and we don't know what whether anything came of this. Maybe nothing came of this. But OK, so, so that was collusion, you know, possibility number one. Number two is that some money changed hands in some way. And number three is is this digital operation information sharing of some kind. So so the idea here is that there was a lot of Russian pro-Trump activity online, on Twitter, on Facebook, on in all these realms. And the theory has been, and multiple reports quoting anonymous sources have said that special counsel Robert Mueller is investigating whether there was any sort of data sharing between the Trump team and the Russians to help the Russians figure out like who best to target. So the theory here is that, I guess, the, Russia was like, oh, we, we have this this digital army that can that can help you and and um, that someone on Trump's team may have tipped them off about where to put their resources, shared information about certain voters to target, and so on. And to be clear, there's no evidence that this happened, but it's it's something that, according to several recent reports, Mueller is still looking at very closely. He recently brought in several RNC and Trump data staffers to interview them about the Trump campaign's data practices. Including and Brad Parscale, right? I don't remember. I, I, I'm sure he was, it seems likely he was interviewed at some point. But but the recent reports say he's he's just looking for a lot of information on how the Trump team handled data. So those are sort of the collusion theories. And, and obviously Cambridge was the heart of the Trump team's data operation. So they're being looked at for that. And, and they've had to turn over all of their emails related to the Trump campaign to Mueller as well. Take another break. Blue Apron is the leading meal delivery service in the United States. Uh, you guys probably know about it. Uh, but boy, a lot of people know what they do. A lot of people don't know about all the types of meals that you can eat when you cook with Blue Apron. They get stuff like a quick bucatini with broccoli and pecorino cheese that's, that's really delicious, Italian-style shrimp and, and sweet peppers. They send you a box of, of food with great step-by-step instructions. It's easy to do. It's, it's super convenient. But most of all, it's really tasty because they've got incredible ingredients. You know, I mean, food, it comes down, particularly when you're cooking for yourself, the 
quality of the ingredients that are there. And that's what they have. Chefs design recipes, they work with suppliers, and you really see the power of what food can do. To me personally, what's most great about this service is that I like to cook. It gets a little boring to eat the same thing all the time, but also planning out menus, trying to think of new things can be challenging. Having these different options sent to you, it's a great way to make sure that you're always trying new things while you're still eating at home and you're not wasting food. And the quality ingredients just mean it's, it's going to be delicious. So here's what you need to know. Blue Apron is treating Weeds listeners to $30 off your first order. You go to blueapron.com slash weeds. Uh, so that's a great deal. Uh, check out this week's menu. Get your $30 off at blueapron.com slash weeds. It's Blue Apron. It's a better way to cook. And so then what happened that like got this all? Because this has been buzzing around like forever. Right. And so, like, why is there big news like right now? So the stories that put this on the map and and at the top of the political agenda were a pair of stories in The New York Times and uh, The Guardian Observer that came out um, at the end of last week in which a former Cambridge Analytica employee, Christopher Wiley, uh, came forward. You know, it's been sort of known that Cambridge had this Facebook data uh, for a few years now, but Wiley came forward and provided with a lot more documentation to the reporters and and first-person descriptions of his own role of how they actually got the data and, and really told the story a little more and, and told it colorfully. He's a colorful character. He describes himself as a gay Canadian vegan who ended up uh, building Steve Bannon's psychological warfare tool. So he came forward. He has pink hair. There are a lot of pictures of him. It's And it was a big story. And, and I think that, you know, one, one of the takeaways that freaked people out the most about this story is, is like the idea that this shady firm could use this these futuristic data techniques to, to basically brainwash people into... Uh, voting for Trump or, or maybe not voting or something like that. And and I think the most extreme claims of, of what Cambridge can supposedly do aren't really backed up that much. But you I know, mean, Ted they, Cruz would be president <laughs> if Cambridge right. Analytica could actually use your Facebook data to brainwash you. There are a lot of senses in which the resistance to Trump is often liable to believe the narratives that the Trump team is selling about themselves, right? Like this is this is something we saw last year with the kind of President Bannon stuff. The idea that there is a power behind the throne who like has this big long-term strategy for America that's something that a lot of liberals really don't want to see happen is very powerful. So I think that, and this also ties into the kind of efforts to, you know, there was a meme on left Twitter earlier this week that like the NRA gave money to Cambridge Analytica this morning as, you know, people absorb that John Bolton is going to be the new national security advisor. There's like people pointing out that John Bolton's super PAC gave money to Cambridge Analytica and the Mercers gave money to Bolton. Oh, we, we should explain just, that a little bit. Probably. Yeah. But I think I think in terms of like the reason that this is all coming, that we're going to continue to see any figure in conservative politics, if they have any ties with Cambridge Analytica, being used as part of a liberal narrative of, oh, they bought into this nefarious plan to hack your brains. Although, I mean, I mean, what's interesting, of course, right, is that like Cambridge Analytica and the Mercer family are essentially identical. I mean, I should clarify, they are different, but I mean, they they have complete overlap, basically, in their political patronage base in the United States. And so one way of saying that, like, John Bolton has ties to Cambridge Analytica, um, which is like, ooh, you know, but maybe nothing, I actually had not realized until this came out that the Mercers had been supporting John Bolton while he was off in exile, that I had broadly speaking associated the Mercers with a trend in the less neocon-y, more maybe isolationisty tendency in the Republican Party, John Bolton definitely does not reflect that tendency. And I would say it helps clarify like what kinds of toys the Mercers were picking up. Like John Bolton is a guy who was very conservative, who was held in a bad air by the American mainstream, sometimes because his substantive views were a little bit too far right, uh, sometimes because he he, he has like bad manners, he, you know, whatever. He, he, he definitely counts as someone who is a conservative 
who was not part of, quote unquote, the establishment, but in a totally different sense from like the sense in which Steve Bannon had a way to completely reject George W. Bush's foreign policy, right? And it's, I mean, Dara was saying before, I agree, it's, it's, it remains unclear to me what it is the Mercer family has been trying to do in American politics. The fact that John Bolton had some role in that is a further indicator just to me of how, how unclear it is. That's totally fair. And I think the other thing here is for the argument that's been going on about the Kochs for like a decade at this point is, you know, a lot of conservative and like libertarians in D.C. say, well, the Kochs aren't really Republicans. They're, you know, they're they're libertarians. They support criminal justice reform, blah, 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 blah. They, you know, support gay marriage. And the counter argument has always been. Yes, but the candidates to whom they give money aren't candidates who have to agree with them on those things. They do have to agree with them on tax cuts and entitlements. And, you know, that is an argument that happens because we know what Charles Koch believes. The idea that, A, we have to be piecing together what what the Mercers want from the ways in which they're spending money, and B, that the common thread in the ways in which they're spending money appears to be, A, people who aren't given a lot of credibility by like mainstream political society and B have a record of non like not super liking brown people in other countries. It's not the only conclusion that you can necessarily draw from this, but it's kind of a for people for whom, oh, the real answer to all of this is racism is a very compelling argument. This seems like a very compelling way to lead to that argument. Yeah. So after those stories came out with the Cambridge former employee, and just to catch us up to the present, we also got another investigative series on Cambridge from uh, Channel 4 News. And basically, they had a four-month uh, undercover sting in which one of their reporters pretended to be a wealthy Sri Lankan who uh, was looking for business from Cambridge. And he videotaped the executives, including the CEO, Alexander Nix, um, trying to land his business, basically. And they were bragging about all the things they could do. Uh, Nick said that he could send some girls around to an opposing candidate's house in an attempt to, like, some sort of prostitution-related dirty trick. He said we could have someone offer uh, the opposing candidate a bribe, try to tape them accepting it to to, – entrap them, basically. And so he he was bragging about all the things that – he said, supposedly have been done. Uh, He was a little vague on whether Cambridge and SCL Group itself had actually done those things. But but those got a lot of attention and and just added to the firm's aura of of being dirty and shady. And and so they suspended Alexander Nix as CEO pending an investigation. And and that's basically where things are at this point. So I do have one question about this whistleblower dude. Like, to what extent a are a lot of the people who are now participating in blowing, you know, and whistleblowing on Cambridge Analytica invested in the idea that there was something very powerful and nefarious going on? Uh, and B, like, how reliable is this dude individually? Because one of the stories that came out this week, which I know you, both you and I had questions about, was this dude saying that they were testing in 2014 messages about building a wall, uh, you know, on the U.S.-Mexico border and about draining the swamp, and that this was directed by Steve Bannon. And the strong implication was that in 2014, Steve Bannon wrote Donald Pr- Trump's p- presidential platform before Donald Trump entered the race, and like. Given everything we know about the chronology of when Bannon and Cambridge Analytica joined Trump's campaign, this seems extremely sketchy. And it's the kind of thing that makes me wonder how much of all of this stuff I should be taking with a grain of salt. I would I would want to see some documentation before believing that like they were actually testing Donald Trump's exact messages in 2014. Uh, Steve Bannon was was essentially running the show at Cambridge at that point. So I have no trouble believing that he was testing all sorts of political messages, especially on immigration, one of his favorite topics. Also, you know, draining the swamp like that, that's I, I don't know if that specific phrase was tested, but. But yeah, I, I mean, as far as the whistleblower's credibility, Christopher Wiley, I, I, I think he's he's um, 
you know, like many others at Cambridge, he has a penchant for very grandiose rhetoric. I, I think where he's advanced the story is in actually providing documentation for what the firm actually did. So I, I don't think we should necessarily just entirely believe everything he might claim about the firm's powers, but... But here, I want to talk about Facebook. Yes, because, I was going to. I was trying to figure out a way because, to get you because to talk I mean, about this I do think. I mean, this is where he really shed clear light on what was going on, and you know, I mean, I think people who tech reporters have known for a long time that Facebook's practices with its user data are not exactly as portrayed. But this was just like a good, clear, concrete example, right? Like Facebook says that your data will not be shared unless you agree to share it, right? And then buried somewhere in there, there's this proviso that they might allow academic researchers to use this friends of friends data. But it's like the academic researchers need to agree not to uh, you know, use it for commercial purposes. So it turns out that agreement is like, wait, if you had a safe deposit box at the bank and they're like, oh, we won't give your key to anyone. But like, actually, they might give your key to academic researchers, but only if the academic researchers promise not to steal all your shit. But also, there's no effort to verify whether or not they've stolen all your shit. And also, there's no consequences for them doing it. And like, that is Facebook's privacy policy, right? And that in turn is because their privacy policy is just a policy, right? Like, it's entirely a self-regulatory issue, which is different from... Josh Marshall drew out a good analogy about this, about Talking Points Memo, which, uh, you know, his website, they have a TPM Prime program. Uh, to get TPM Prime, you obviously have to pay them with a credit card. And so the question anybody who accepts credit card payment online faces is, like, what are you going to do with that information, right? And what everybody does is they contract with a third-party payment processor who specializes in handling credit card payment and data security. And the reason that you do that, right, Right, is that you face massive legal liability, right? Like if Josh was just cheaping out in totally good-hearted way, right? Like he had no intention of like selling your credit card numbers to anybody. But if it was sitting around somewhere and it got lost because like an intern of his found it, right? Like he'd be on the hook for like real meaningful monetary penalties. So companies try not to do that. Facebook is now like in trouble because because this data breach happened to have intersected with a largely unrelated and possibly overhyped political scandal now everybody's like oh my god they don't actually do anything to back up the claims that they make and there's like Mark Zuckerberg had to get out of his fortress of solitude and do some press appearances uh, Mark Zuckerberg obviously you know, doesn't believe in privacy as a concept, as he's told you, but like never appears in public, et cetera, because um, he he values his his privacy enormously. Um, Mark Zuckerberg it, is the living embodiment of something that is obviously true, but that Mark Zuckerberg will never say out loud, which is that privacy is a privilege to those who have the power to like bother to erect walls. Right, and you know, I mean, there's just. A question here. I mean, there was a question about political advertising on Facebook. There's a question about privacy on Facebook. And like the question is basically like at one time, the government took the view that you had a very light regulatory touch with internet startups because the costs of squelching small new firms' ability to do this uh, would be really high, which is true, right? I mean, you imagine early Facebook is like Mark Zuckerberg, a couple people he knows, they're running this website, they're growing it out. They couldn't have hired like a big legal compliance team and like the whole thing would have not gotten off the ground if they'd had like a big regulatory apparatus. At this point, these are like giant multi-billion dollar companies, right? Like they, they don't want to be regulated because nobody does. But like if they had to hire a thousand lawyers and pay them each a million dollars a year, like the company would not go out of business. Like they could comply with any set of regulations. They just aren't. I think the other thing here is 
people who might not have been paying a ton of attention to all of the, you know, tech blogosphere concern about Facebook's privacy policy now are interested in it because of this idea of the very powerful brainwashing operation. There's something about a conspiracy narrative, about a deliberate, you know, high tech, very nefarious plot that piques a lot of people's interest um, and that allows them to shift blame. There's, it's not necessarily the case that, you know, Cambridge Analytica was pumping messages into the American polity or that Russian bots, for that matter, were pumping messages into the American polity that no American would dare express. That wasn't what was going on. But it's very convenient to believe that, you know, beliefs that you personally find politically noxious are the result of somebody exterior. They're not the result of people you know, who you consider friends or neighbors or, you know, compatriots being activated. There's a long history of, and the reason that I'm making this comparison is not because of the U.S., to be super clear. I'll make it clear in a bit. Um, there's a long history of mass media being used in genocides. There's, you know, radio was a very important weapon for Hitler. Radio was a very important re weapon in the Rwandan genocide. Uh, the ability to kind of spread messages out to large groups of people and empower them to do things that maybe part of them would have wanted to do, but to do it in a coordinated way is kind of terrifying. And, you know, Facebook in is currently under a certain amount of fire in Myanmar for being, you know, a, a vector for fake news and hatred against Rohingya Muslims who are the victims of what appears to be an ongoing genocide there, uh, which is something that Matt brought up in his, his case against Facebook, which I, I feel is a really important connection to draw. What's happened in the U.S. isn't anywhere near a genocide. It's nowhere close. But, it's a lot easier to believe that people were trying to manipulate you or were trying to pump messages in there that were going to hack into your brain than that having mass media that validates people's you know, deepest biases about the people they live among is maybe a thing that should be more closely watched and people should think of themselves as more responsible consumers to avoid that happening to them. Like, that is a more complicated narrative that is not nearly as fun as Cambridge Analytica had a plan to hack your brain. Steve Bannon hacked your mind. And I, and I do want to say that, you know, I know we've all been poo-pooing Cambridge Analytica's <laughs> what they actually may have managed to do with this. But this data that they got is very valuable. Like it's, Facebook is an extremely valuable company in large part because they have access to all this data. And I, and I know we're joking about like, oh, how could this band tell you about someone's personality? Oh, that seems so obvious, but, but it's useful. Like campaigns spend a lot of resources to try to collect this data and Facebook makes a lot of money on sort of um, the fact that they are the place where this data lives. And maybe Cambridge hadn't quite, you know, perfected the tool of secretly manipulating people based on it, but, but it's still valuable data. The fact that they may have obtained it inappropriately is, is, a, is a serious matter. Is well, and, and also, I mean, I want to say, I, I was mocking a little bit the idea of the psychographic methodology, right? Because like one of the Cambridge claims is that they are like able to transcend demographic targeting. But the raw data that they got from Facebook without people's permission is very useful for very traditional message targeting, which clearly work. I mean, there's always a question about how persuasive is political messaging. But I, I, it's, it's common sense. I shouldn't even say common sense. It's clearly true that the ability to target your message to people who live in the swing states, right, is useful and cost effective. And to go further, that like certain ads only make sense to show or make more sense to show to certain kinds of people. So if you were able to identify 20-something African-American men who live in Midwestern tipping point states and hit them with a message about how Hillary Clinton said this racist stuff in the past, that's like a way better idea than just like running a national political campaign on that theme. And like this Facebook data, that's not um, rocket science. But obtaining the data is difficult unless you have a Russian professor who will help you steal it. 
as campaigns have gotten more nationalized and, you know, every Democrat in any swing district in 2018 is running against Nancy Pelosi, regardless of whether they've said they would support Nancy Pelosi for speaker, that kind of thing, there it's gotten a lot harder to do that kind of message targeting, even at the level of like running an ad on local television that is you know, far to the right or left of what you would like your donors in D.C. to know about. But if you can do this at the level of individuals and you know that the political the people who are going to be interested in comparing notes and seeing if there is hypocrisy there are mostly the political press, which is concentrated on the coasts, the odds that someone would manage to discover very sophisticated message targeting being done and like put together a picture from all of the various dots that are being presented is not that high. Like, maybe you can do that after the campaign happens. I know that there are some, you know, transparency groups out there that are, you know, trying to crowdsource this sort of data, but it gives you an ability to to hack society in a different way, to kind of take advantage of the segregation of people into you know various groups to make sure that the group you're sending the message is not the group who would make a big deal out of you sending the message. And with that... All right. All right. <laughs> Great. Uh, so thanks, Andrew, for joining us. Uh, thanks to our, our sponsors, our uh, engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Thanks to all of you out there in Weeds land. I think I have not uh, touted the Weeds Facebook group recently, uh, but while Facebook is bad and will uh, exploit your data to let Steve Bannon hack your brain uh, with it, uh, as long as we're all living on this planet, you, you may as well join us, have, a, have an exciting discussion. It is the only good thing about Facebook, being a member of the, of the Weeds group has made Facebook a much better experience for me. It's true. It's a great group. We may, maybe we will use the group to brainwash you. Who knows? Uh, what, Julie we'll... Bogan, our excellent <laughs> social media manager, will definitely yes, brainwash she's, you she's if she gets the, the, the Cambridge Analytica of Vox.com. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>